as we come to John chapter 13, we come to this important night in the life of Jesus and his disciples, for that matter. The other uh, gospels describe it as something we call the Last Supper. Uh, John doesn't detail how Jesus celebrated with the cup and the bread with the disciples, but he does walk us through some very specific and important things that Jesus had to tell his disciples on that night. So if you would, draw your minds back to that place, to an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, where Jesus is gathered around a table that's kind of U-shaped with his disciples. And gathered around that table, there's Jesus and 12 others, and they're celebrating a Passover meal. It has sort of a formal feel to it, like it might at one of your Thanksgiving dinners. And as they're there gathered around the table, Jesus explains things that they need to know before he leaves this particular earth. Now, he had just washed their feet. He had just demonstrated humble service to them. Now, he wants to connect with them and seek to prepare them for what's to come. Take a look here, starting at verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now, I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus looks around the table at these 12 other men, and he says, I know who I'm chosen. I know you men. You're no mystery to me. I know what's going on, but please listen to me. Tonight, a scripture will be fulfilled. He's quoting Psalm 41, verse 9, in which David the psalmist said this, Even my own familiar friend, in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. My own friend, a man sitting at my own table, with whom I shared bread with, that man is going to kick me in an unexpected and violent way. Jesus is going to declare it a little more plainly in the next few verses, but they got the message right here. They got the message that someone sitting at that table was going to betray Jesus. There was a traitor in the room. There was someone who was playing both sides. There was a double agent. There was a spy amongst them. That's what he meant by the reference to Psalm 41, verse 9, where David described a similar situation that he went through in his own life. Now, in verse 20, Jesus said something that I think is just a little throwaway line, not that it wasn't unimportant, but it doesn't get really to his main point. But he's telling them, if you notice in verse 20, he says, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He's saying, I've still got sending to do. Hey, Mr. Trader at my table, Mr. Double Agent eating my bread, you're not going to win. I've still got sending to do. I'm going to send you out. This isn't the end. It's not over by a long shot. But now notice what he says at verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him and asked of who it was that he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Jesus is there at the dinner. And at verse 21, he says in much more plain language, that which he had just referred to before by quoting the scriptures, he says very plainly, Someone at this table will betray me. There is a traitor at our table. And verse 22 tells us that the disciples were perplexed. Jesus, what are you talking about? Jesus, we know each other. We've lived with one another for three years. We know all of our weird and disgusting habits. There's nothing hidden in a group of men that lived together for 12 years. We know each other. We get it. If there was a traitor on Mitch, he would have flunked out of this group a long time ago. Jesus, no, we are with you until the end. They were perplexed by this statement of Jesus. Matter of fact, they were so perplexed that they wondered, Jesus, do you mean betraying you by accident? Do you, do you mean something inadvertent, unintentional? The Gospel of Matthew chapter 26 tells us that every one of the disciples looked at Jesus and said, Lord, is it I? Do you mean I? Do you mean me? Am I the one who's about to betray you? And that tells us two very important things. Number one, it tells us that Judas, oh, did I just spoil that, that Judas was the 12? I hadn't told you that yet. <laughs> Judas is the guy. Judas was not detected in his traitorous work at all. In other words, the disciples did not immediately look at Judas and point at him. That's the guy. I knew it. Sneaky Judas. Look, he has that name, Judas. Everybody knows Judas is the bad guy. Nobody said that. Nobody thought it. They were perplexed and asked themselves, is it I? The other thing is this. I want you to notice that there's something very good in the hearts of the disciples when they say that. Is it I? Friends, I hope that some of that same goodness that the disciples showed at that moment, I hope that some of it's in you. I certainly hope that some of it's in me. And what do I mean by that? Friends, when we read the Bible and it describes sin that God has to deal with, do, do you ask, is it I, Lord? When you hear the preacher talking about something that God needs to correct in our lives, do you ask God, Is it I, Lord? Or is it like, oh, I'm so glad that my wife is here to hear this one. You know, you kind of get in that little rib poke, you know, that you do there in church. Or you think of the person who's not here. Oh, man, if only they were here. Man, it was just, this is what they need to hear. And isn't it funny how we can assign that to everybody else instead of asking the question that I need to ask, is it I. I've said it before, but I, I don't mind saying it again because I, I wonder if, I, I think I can't say this too much in front of you. 
there is an automatic tendency. I understand it, but it's not, it's not good, it's not right, but there's an automatic tendency for you to think that I am more holy than I am because I stand on a platform and talk to you about the Bible. And think, well, maybe he doesn't struggle with sin. You know, maybe, um, maybe idolatry is never a problem for him. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe lust is, is very far from a holy man like that. Friends, don't delude yourselves. Every one of us, me included, when it comes time to examine our lives, we need to ask a question that the disciples ask, Lord, is it I? Now, they went around and each asked that question, but Simon Peter wanted to know more. Look at verse 23. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask of who it was that he spoke. Peter couldn't discreetly ask Jesus, so he asked John, and who did he ask? Look at there, verse 23. Now, there was leaning on John's bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. He said, well, which one is that? There's 12 men around a table, and one of them Jesus loves. Which one is it? Well, you know, he loved all of them, didn't he? But isn't that interesting? When John, and I'll just tell you, I don't have time to get into it here. But when John says the disciples whom Jesus loved, he means himself. He mentions it four times in his gospel. He means himself. He mentions it here. He mentions at the cross. He mentions it uh, in, when Jesus rose from the dead on the day of resurrection. And he mentions it at the Sea of Galilee after Jesus rose from the dead. Four times in his gospel, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. But friends, there is something so wonderful about that, that when John thinks about himself and identifies himself, how does he describe himself? Hi, hi I, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. I, I introduced myself to the apostle John. I'm sure it's going to happen like this way in heaven. Hi, who are you? I'm John. I'm David. That's great. You know, yeah, I was a preacher in Santa Barbara. And then he goes, who are you? I'm John the Apostle. I'm the one who Jesus loved. Now, part of you wants to take John, hug his shoulder, say, dear, dear John, don't you understand that he loved a lot of people? Because, yeah, whatever. I know he loved me. That's how I identify myself. Look, I'm no expert on the current culture or society or anything. But I'll tell you something I observe. It may or may not be accurate. Take it for what it's worth. I observe that one of the biggest issues in the broader culture today is everybody screaming out with the question, would you please tell me who I am? Who am I? What's my identity? I don't know. Am I heterosexual or am I homosexual? Am I old or am I young? Uh, Am I a man or a woman? That, that didn't used to be really a very much of a relevant question, did it? P- people ask that, they really want to know. It's all focused on identity. We, we identify ourselves by the things we like, the places we go, the products we like. Here in Santa Barbara, you say, well, look, am I a French press person or a handlebar person? Which is it? We, we, we have this way. What's my identity? Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ has a message for this generation, for this culture. He has a message for today, and it's this. Start by finding your identity in my love. Every one of us should be able to say, we should have it deep in our heart. First and foremost, you want to know who I am? I'm the one who Jesus loves. 
I'm like the Apostle John. And again, some, well, don't you understand he loves a lot of me? I know, but he loves me. That is the foundation for who I am. And I'm not saying that's the only thing about me or the only thing about me that's important, but I'm saying that's where it begins. And I tell you, if it doesn't begin there, no wonder there's so much identity confusion. No wonder there's so many people who, who can't figure out who they are. John knew who he was. He knew how to find his identity in the love of Jesus. That's where it begins. And I tell you, God wants that for you. And that's the answer for our culture today as well. Continuing on in verse 25, it says that John was leaning back on Jesus' breast and he asked him a question. He said, this is the weirdest dinner party I ever heard of. What are they doing here? Friends, notice this. They didn't sit at tables like we sat at tables. They sat around a table known as a triclinium. As we've discussed before, it's like a low coffee table. And they would use low couches or cushions and sort of lay their body up to the table. They would lean down on their right thing, arm and come over and eat the, the food with their right hand. And again, they didn't eat every meal like this. It was sort of like formal meals, fancy meals, you know, sort of special occasion meals. And they would get together and eat in just this way. Now, if you're all kind of laying down in this way, if you wanted to talk to somebody and say something personal, you could just lean back and have a conversation that no one else could hear. That's exactly what Jesus and John did. They had their own little conversation. Now, it's a little tough to piece it together only from the Gospel of John, but when you put all the Gospels together, we understand one thing. We understand that most likely Jesus was in the place of the host at the dinner. Judas was on one side in the place of honor, and John was on the other side in the place of second honor. I found a little diagram from that in a commentary. That's what's up on the wall right now. I have no idea how that commentator knew where everybody else was sitting, but that's beside the point. He seemed very confident about it, don't you think? I mean, he could tell you that there's Matthew, second from the right. He knows, right? There he is. But in any regard, understand this. Jesus is in the position of the host. Judas is in the position of favor. John is in the second position of favor, the second position of honor. And what a thing this is. On the one side, you have John the divine. On the other side, you have Judas the devil. On the one side, you have John the seer of the book of Revelation. On the other side, you have Judas the son of perdition. And friends, that's how it is all throughout the gospel of John. All throughout the gospel of John, Jesus is this man of great love, this man who brings new life, but he's also the man who divides. You're on one side of them or the other. You either say, I want to be on the side of Jesus's favor on John, the uh, apostle side, or I'm going to be on the side of Judas, the one who betrayed him. Now, because Judas was right next to Jesus, it says there in verse 26, he answered John's question. It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Jesus says, John, here's the clue. The man to whom I give a piece of bread after I've dipped it, that's the one. This is what you need to understand. This was not just something Jesus casually did. This was a sign during the meal of special love and favor. You know what it would be like in our culture? It'd be like a toast. You know, it's sort of a formal meal. Somebody else said, I'd like to toast 
so-and-so at our meal. Thank you for being here. We love you so much. And everybody toasts them. It was a way during the meal to show special esteem and honor to a guest. And how did he do it? Jesus took a piece of bread. He just tore off a little corner of bread. He went into the common, you know, little bowl or dish where they had all the meat and gravy and all the good stuff. And he just dipped in a nice, healthy piece there. And he gave it to Judas. And when Judas took it, it was Jesus's way of telling him, I love you. I favor you. They had to make eye contact when they did that. Can you imagine the look in Jesus' eyes as he looks at Judas full of love, full of compassion? And can you imagine the look in Judas' eyes as he looks back upon the Savior whom he will shortly betray. Look at it here, starting at verse 27. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Jesus had the money box, that Jesus said to him, buy those things that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. Jesus gives Judas the piece of bread. And friends, do you understand what this is? This is the last chance. Judas I know, I know what you're about to do. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, it says that as each one of the disciples went around and asked, is it I, Lord, is it I? That when Judas said to Jesus, is it I? And Jesus must have replied so quietly that nobody else could say, Jesus must have said it very softly to Judas so that Judas alone could hear it. But Jesus said to Judas, he said, you have said it. I know you're the one, Judas, but I love you. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet just before this, I think that it might have been the pinnacle of Jesus showing love to his friends that anybody ever saw. Look at how he loves his friends. Friends, This is the pinnacle of Jesus showing love to his enemies that anybody ever saw. And those displays of love are only going to be exceeded by what Jesus is going to show at the cross very shortly. Judas, here's the bread, but I love you. And then what does it say there in verse 27? Satan entered him. Friends, this is frightening. I'll be straight out with you. It's frightening. Do you think Judas knew that Satan entered him? Do you think Judas held out a big sign? Satan, come in. No, as happens almost all the time when the devil does his work, he does it hidden. Did you know that the devil does his most dangerous work undercover? He does it. 
Maybe at certain times, at certain places, the devil likes to make a big show. He likes to frighten people, likes to throw out the exorcist kind of stuff. Look, every once in a while, the devil will do that. But more so, he likes to work undercover in the midst of people so they don't even know what's going on. I don't think think Judas knew at that moment that the devil entered into him, but he did. And friends... We need to be on guard always against the hidden work of the devil. But at that moment, Jesus knew there was no turning back. He told Judas, what you do, do quickly. Because Jesus knew that the die was cast. There was no going back. He appealed to Judas. He appealed to Judas in two ways. He appealed to Judas saying, listen, I know you, Judas. I know your very darkest things. But then secondly, he said, I love you. Here is my goodness to you. Here's the sign of my love and favor. He took it. And with the bread still in his mouth, he left to go betray Jesus. Friends, do you see what's going on here? Don't be like Judas. Jesus looks at every one of us here this morning and he says, I know you. I know your very darkest things. Jesus knows the things about me that I would be absolutely humiliated if anybody else knew. And he knows the same things about you. He knows those things And yet he still loves me. He still holds out his hand to me and to you. And he says, here's my salvation at the cross. Here it is. I've come to rescue you. I've come to bring joy and goodness and happiness to your life. Here I am for you. And for somebody to say, all right, Jesus, I'll take that bread from you, but forget it. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to go betray you. Don't be like Judas. Isn't that a pretty simple lesson to draw from this? When Jesus tells you that he knows you but still loves you, when Jesus makes a wonderful display of his love to you, receive it and surrender to it. But Judas didn't. He went out immediately. Now let me say one more thing about Judas before we get into the next verse. Judas shows us something very significant. He shows us that we need more than an example and we need more than good teaching. What do I mean by that? Look, don't you agree that Judas had the best example anybody's ever had? He lived with Jesus for three years. Don't you think Jesus was pretty much the best example anybody could ever have? He saw it right up front. The best example for three years he had it, day and night with Jesus. It wasn't enough for Judas. Wouldn't you also agree that Judas had the best Bible teaching that anybody ever had? Man, to hear Jesus teach the Bible, that'd be the most amazing thing ever. It wasn't enough. Friends, you can have a great example, you can hear good teaching from the Bible, but without a fundamental surrender of your life to Jesus Christ, without him working his new life in you and in me, We have nothing. We have nothing. Continuing on, verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, 
Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Now look, I I don't think, and I can't prove this, but I don't think that Jesus' attitude was, well, good, we got the skunk out of the room, now God can be glorified. That wasn't the feeling. No, it's like, now that Judas has gone out to collect the soldiers to come and arrest me, now it's all set in motion. Now there's no turning back. He's going to get the troops from the temple guard. They're going to meet us in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to raise from the dead. And the work cannot be stopped now. It's all set in motion. Now the Son of Man is what? Let me read to you verse 31 again. Now when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is humiliated at the cross. Did he say that? What did he say? Now the Son of Man is glorified. What, what, Jesus? Jesus? This is not the Mount of Transfiguration. You're not going to be lifted up with Moses and Elijah and shine as radiant of the sun. Jesus, I think you're mixing up events in your life. They're going to take you to a cross and they're going to spit in your face and they're going to put you on that cross with cruel railroad spikes through your wrists. You're going to hang on that cross in agony and your worst enemies are going to mock you and laugh at you on the cross. And Jesus, I know I'm going to be glorified. How could he ever call it such a thing? Because friends, the cross perfectly made known the heart of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus is so full of love, so full of sacrifice, so full of giving, that, that for Jesus to be known is to be glorified. If it makes known my heart of love for the world, that's glory. And, and the love of Jesus is going to be revealed in a brand new way at the cross. Brand new. Therefore, God will be glorified by the work that happens at the cross. And then he says in verse 33, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You'll seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So I say to you, I'm just with you a little while longer. I'm going away. I think about it, and I use the illustration that Jesus set off two bombs at the dinner. Metaphorically speaking, he rolled a couple hand grenades there in the midst of the table. The first hand grenade was, okay, all around this table, one of you is going to be a, a betray me. One of you is a traitor. That's a pretty big thing to say at dinner. I've never had a Thanksgiving dinner work out just like that. Have you? The other hand grenade that Jesus rolled in the midst of there is described right there in verse 33. Jesus tells him very plainly, I'm out of here. I'm gone. You guys are going to have to carry on without me because I'm leaving. In a sense, what the disciples heard was, we are abandoning you. That's not what Jesus said, but that's what they heard. I'm abandoning you, disciples. I'm leaving. Jesus, we're not done with our discipleship yet. Jesus, you haven't been installed in your kingdom yet. Jesus, there's so much yet to be done. Jesus, what's going on? Hey, I'm leaving. And Jesus spends the rest of John chapter 14, 15, 16, and even in his prayer in 17, explaining to him the implications of his departure and preparing them for it. The first thing he wants to do is give them a new commandment. Look at it here at verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Men, I'm leaving you. 
I'm going away. You guys will carry on the work. Please understand this. Number one on the list, top of the list, first in priority, love one another. You know, disciples liked to fight a lot, didn't they? They held together because Jesus was in their midst. What was going to happen when Jesus left? Jesus said, I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to give you new hearts, and you guys are going to need to love one another. Matter of fact, he says, notice at verse 34, love one another as I have loved you. The command to love wasn't new, but the extent of love was. Friends, the Bible tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus said that, and the Old Testament tells us that. But you know what Jesus said? He said, forget about loving your neighbor as yourself. You should love one another as I loved you. Jesus loved me more than I ever loved myself. Jesus gave us a new example, a new extent of love. And friends, I don't know about you, but I look at that and go, how can I possibly do that? How can I possibly love someone else the way that Jesus loves me? I'll tell you how we can do it. Because Jesus lives in us. Do you understand that? We can only love as Jesus loved as Jesus lives within us. If he lives within us, then we can love as he loved. I've got good news for you. Ready for this? The best Christian who ever lived. Now, wouldn't you agree that Jesus Christ is the best Christian who ever lived? The best Christian who ever lived lives inside of you. If you're born again by God's spirit, that's true. If Jesus has given you new life, that new life is patterned after the son of God. Jesus lives within you and he can love in and through you so you really can love other people with the same heart of sacrifice and devotion that Jesus loved us. And the price for doing that is pretty high because look at verse 35. He said, by this all will know that you are disciples. Do you understand what Jesus meant by that? Jesus gave a measuring stick to the whole world. Hey, everybody, you can see whether or not they are really my disciples by whether or not they love one another. Gulp. Really, Jesus? Jesus, you measure me by that? The world can measure me like that? We should measure one another like that? The display for whether or not we really love one another, excuse me, whether or not we are really his disciples is found in whether or not we love one another. Now, as I say that, I wonder if in a few of you across this room instantly has come to mind somebody, a a brother or sister in God's family and you really do not like them. You you don't love them. It just, as soon as I said that, it flashed in my mind, them. I don't know, but them. You know who that, them. The picture is very secure in your mind, them. What about them? Listen, I... I'm just going to get right to the point and tell you what to do with them. Ready? Start praying for them. Start praying for them. If you pray for someone, especially another brother or sister in Jesus Christ, God will turn your heart to truly love them. I believe it. I've experienced it. I've had times in my life where I've had a very difficult time loving somebody. Uh, Maybe I felt I was justified. It's funny, as the year goes on, I feel less and less justified, but that's always strange how that is. But I felt entirely justified at the time in not loving them and being against them. And I don't remember if this is something I read somewhere. I don't remember if it's something somebody said to me, but I just came upon it. You know what I need to do? I need to start praying for them. And I'll tell you how I started praying for them. I've started praying for them. Lord, get them. (laughs) 
Well, I'm praying for him, aren't I? But at least I was bringing that person before God. And if I brought that person before God, God starts working on my heart. And before long, I'm actually praying nice prayers for them. And before long after that, my heart is changing after them. Friends, we need to love one another. That's not the only way to do it, but that's a way that's extremely important. Now let's just finish up here, starting at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Oh, there's Peter. Can't stand the idea that Jesus is going somewhere and he can't follow. Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll follow you. Uh, No, Peter, you can't really follow me anywhere. You, You will later. What Jesus meant by that, you'll follow me to death later, but not now. No, 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 Jesus, you don't know how much I love you. You don't know how devoted I am to you. Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. And what has Jesus said? Jesus said, "Um, Peter, before daylight the next day, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny me. You know what's funny about Peter? When Peter said, no way, I'll never deny you. Don't you think Peter meant it? I do. Here's the problem. He meant it at the moment, but he didn't appreciate his own weakness. This is how it works. Peter could never die for Jesus until Jesus first died for him. And that's how it is for you and I, isn't it? Friends, we can never lay down our lives for anyone else, Jesus or his people, until we receive the life that Jesus laid down for us. I make no apology for it. God has called every one of us to live lives of sacrificial service to his people and to a needy world in Jesus' name. Do you believe that? I believe it. I believe that God wants to use you and I to make a difference among his people and in this world. There is thing, there is, there are things for us to do. But let me tell you where it all begins. It begins with receiving the life that he laid down for us. We need it every day. We need to come back to it again and again. And then we go out and say, okay, Lord, use us to make a great big difference in this world. Father, that's my prayer. Lord, we we believe it that Peter meant it when he said that he would lay down his life for you. But Lord, it just couldn't happen until you did it first. So Jesus, we look to you. We look to your great work on the cross for us. And we simply say, Jesus, thank you for loving us this way. Jesus, we surrender our lives to you and we ask you to fill us with your spirit. We need it, Jesus. We must have it. We must have the spirit of the living God ruling and reigning within us. So do it, Lord.